I invite you to take your copy of God's Word and open it up to Acts chapter 16. Our passage this morning is going to challenge our desire for neat little formulas that we sometimes hear on how to ascertain God's will. We like the how-tos, don't we? And we like, like it neatly packaged to just read a book and know exactly how we should follow God's will and the decisions we should make in life. I don't think Paul will fully understand what's going on until he sits down with Luke and has a chat before Luke actually writes the book of Acts. I think Paul looks back in retrospect and he sees that our God was weaving a beautiful gospel revealing tapestry throughout all of these missionary endeavors. So today, in this passage, we're going to begin in full understanding Paul's second missionary journey. Last week we learned that Paul lost a very faithful missionary companion that he loved deeply. And we were just, we were just shocked by reading that particular text that the two guys, because of their personalities, they would be divided and separated. But in our passage today, not only, of course, last week did the Lord provide Silas for Paul, but today we're going to be introduced to a missionary companion named Timothy. So really, uh, technically speaking, objectively speaking, what you see straight from the passage is a call to Timothy to become a missionary. And then we have the Macedonian call, which David alluded to. And the primary understanding, however, thematically of the text is that the gospel will advance and the sovereign God will make sure it does. And in the process of doing that, he's going to bring another person on to the missionary band named Timothy and we're going to see God's guidance. So two thoughts you're thinking about today in this text is God's call upon Timothy's life and what that really means for you today when God would take an ordinary guy like Timothy and plug him in and let him serve with the greatest missionary who ever lived and to think about what God may have for you in your life. And secondarily to that is the fact that God always guides his people and we certainly need God's guidance. So Acts chapter 16. Let's begin reading in verse 1. Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted, to, Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places. For they all knew that his father was a Greek. When you're, when you're in a small town, the word moves fast, doesn't it? You just know all about everybody, and that was certainly the case there in Lystra. And as they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. That's referred to as the Jerusalem Council. So the churches were strengthened in the faith. And they increased in numbers daily. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. Boy, isn't that strange? Do the Asians not need to hear the gospel? But here, the Bible says at this point they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come up to Mycenae, they attempted to go to Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mycenae, they went down to Troas. 
and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. All right, first, God provides a missionary for his kingdom work. I want to tell you that Timothy was a lot different from Paul. You know, no one is, uh, no two Christians are exactly alike. Aren't you thankful that, for that diversity? Aren't you thankful that everybody here, I'll pick on Chris, is not like Chris Dixon, right? And everybody's not like David Hicks, and everybody's not like Don Currents, or Jim Metcalf, or Sean Whittle, or whoever it might be. We, we learn that everybody's not the same. We're, we have diversity, right? All of us do. We're called by grace, we're saved by grace, but we all have our calling from God and our perspective and how we live the Christian life. And here is a church made up of diversity. And, and However, nonetheless, Timothy is going to leave his mark upon the church of the Lord Jesus Christ throughout all the ages because of his impact for Jesus. So in our passage, Paul is traveling back through the areas of Derby and Lystra. Why is he going? Because he has a pastoral heart to strengthen those who are there. It's not just those people who trust Christ and that's the end. It's people who trust Christ and grow in Christ. And so he's giving this understanding of what his missionary heart was as well as his pastoral heart. Scholars believe that he was probably in those areas some two years before he returns at this moment. And, of course, there's a difference this time. Somebody's missing. And his name is Barnabas. Do you think that the churches that knew him in Lystra and Derby would have said to Paul, where's Barnabas? Where's the whereabouts of him? Needless to say, we're introduced to a disciple named Timothy. And I believe, as most scholars do, I'm not a scholar, but a Bible student, the fact is that Paul, probably through the instrumentality of Paul's preaching of the word and missionary journeys there in Lystra and Derby during the first missionary encounter would have been the time that Timothy came to faith in Christ. When you read First and Second Timothy, which is called the pastoral epistles. How many of you knew that? Raise your hand. Okay, you need to learn that. There are four primary pastoral epistles. First and second Timothy, Titus, and Philemon, right? Those are pastoral epistles written to pastors. And so Timothy, Paul writes to first, writes first and second Timothy, and he calls him his true son in the faith. Now that doesn't mean biologically. That means the fact that Timothy probably came to faith in Christ under Paul's ministry. And so it's possible that Timothy never walked up to Paul in the first missionary journey and shook his hand and introduced himself. It's possible that he was in the gallery and heard the word of God and was saved and never had met Paul. But one thing is clear from this text. Here's a kid, here's a young guy who is a serious disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. Some speculate that Timothy was between the ages of 18 and 21. Thus, one of the verses that uh, Blake has upstairs. Let no one despise your youth. Paul says that to Timothy. But be an example. And he gives those areas of chastity and conduct and compassion. And how he lives his life. So most people believe that Timothy was between the ages of 18 and 21 at this time. Do you notice the passage? Timothy's mother was Jewish. But his father was Greek. Just stay where you are. Listen to what. Paul says to Timothy in 2 Timothy 1.5, I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois 
and in, your, and in your mother Eunice, and now I am sure it dwells in you as well. That's a reminder of the fact that Timothy, although his dad was Greek, and of course we think that there's a good chance him being Greek, he was not a believer. So here was young Timothy, although his father was lost, here he was raised in a home with a Jewish woman who loved the Lord, and he heard the gospel early on. As a matter of fact, if you read on in 2 Timothy 3.14, listen to this. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and how you have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise unto salvation. So here is Timothy, having been raised in a home where his mother loved the Lord, and his grandmother loved the Lord, and he heard the word of God, and eventually all that hearing that was stored into his mind dropped into his heart, and it made him wise unto salvation. I'll also remind you of First. Corinthians chapter 7 verse 14. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife. And the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. What in the world does that mean? Well, it doesn't mean that just because you are, not, you are a believer living in the home and you're the only one and your husband is lost or your wife is lost, that your kids are automatically going to be saved. But what it does mean is that where the gospel witness is within a household, even if only one parent believes that child is set apart and raised under the glorious influence of the Word of God and the gospel of Christ. And maybe today you find yourself in this difficult situation. I want you to be encouraged that God can take the testimony of a single believing believer, parent, and He can sanctify those children... And call those children to faith in Jesus Christ, even though one of the parents does not believe in the gospel at all. Isn't that encouraging? Even though he was only a believer for a few years, possibly two years at the max, what did the word say about him? Well, he had an awesome reputation. He was spoken of well by those who were around him. In the church in Lystra, people knew that Timothy was on fire for Jesus, that he was sold out to Christ. He was a soul winner. He loved the Lord and he lived it. What is it that we usually notice about young men in our day? Kind of quiet in here. They're rather wild and they're pretty much unfocused. Is that not true? This means yes, this means no. We realize that's the case. They're often not examples of faith and hope and love, but they're actually often poster children for all that we would call unsavory. But here we have Timothy. Would it not be awesome if our church was filled with young men like Timothy? Hey, I'm holding out hope and praying and believing that God is already raising up some and that He will raise up more in the future. Right? Would to God that we had a lot of Timothys from 18 to 25 that filled this church, and they were known by their reputation. Never uh, underestimate the power of, your rep of a reputation and what it says about the Lord you belong to. We don't want to be known as young men who come to church on Sunday morning but live like the devil during the week. I heard one amen, or was that a grunt? But that's so true. Don't discount the value of a good reputation. So when Paul arrives in town, uh, Paul takes notice of Timothy. 
And the church says, let me commend to you this man named Timothy. He's mature beyond his years. We commend him to you. So here we have Timothy's call. Do you think Paul knew the missionary ropes? I mean, he's already had a sharp uh, disagreement. I mean, as sharp as you can get, that, that divided over someone named John Mark, who Paul said, hey, the guy's just as qualified. But here he meets someone named Timothy. He knows the missionary ropes. And he's ready to bring Timothy on for missionary endeavors. Timothy, have you considered the life of a missionary? Can you imagine Paul asking you a question like that? The Apostle Paul. Timothy becomes a companion of the greatest missionary who ever lived. With that invitation. Paul will say in 2 Timothy 1.6, For this reason I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you, through the laying on of hands, for God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power, of self-control, and of love. Now, I don't know, maybe Paul brought him up front in the church, like we do. And laid hands on him. Set him apart for the ministry. And in 2 Timothy, Paul actually writes Timothy and says, Don't forget to fan into flame. I mean, get the embers hot for the cause of Christ. And remember that gift that was given to you the very day that you were saved and how that you surrendered uh, to, a, to be a missionary. So Paul uh, set him aside, the Holy Spirit of God, with instrumentality of mankind, brings bring someone forward and sets him apart for the ministry. And now you've got a missionary band of Paul, Silas, and... But here we've got a problem. Timothy's got a Greek father. And the Bible says that it was known in that area, and everybody knew it. As a matter of fact, for a rabbi, Jewish rabbi, it would have been total taboo for a Jewish woman to marry a Greek man. So this was probably perhaps a notorious type thing going on in their community. Can you believe it? That Eunice married a Greek? Can you believe that? So it was notorious in the day, and so... The fact of the matter is, the Jews in that region knew that Timothy was uncircumcised. What was it that actually caused the Jerusalem council to begin with? The understanding of circumcision. Right? So, this is quite interesting that Paul is having Timothy fill out the liability release waivers to go on the first missionary trip. You know, that's kind of what Blake and Don do. Got to fill out your waiver. Parents got to sign off, liability release form. Well, can you imagine? Timothy, fill out your forms, but by the way, I've got something else. You've got to be circumcised. Well, that's not in the missionary report, right? That's, surely that's not part of the calling. But for Paul, his decision was, if you're going to be useful for this particular mission, you need to be circumcised. Now, is this a retraction of what the Word of God says about circumcision? Is it? What did Paul say about circumcision? You Judaizers, if you believe that physical circumcision saves you, then you've cut yourself off from grace. And you've fallen from grace. In other words, you're not saved if you believe that you can be saved by Mosaic legislation and or circumcision or any part of the law for that matter. Is this a retraction? Because he turns right around and says, Now, Timothy, I need you to be circumcised. Consider the audience. Katie's in here. You've got to consider your audience, don't you? you got to consider who you're ministering to. And if you read 1 Corinthians, you'll find that Paul says, I've got to become all things. But through all means, I might win some. So here, Paul says to Timothy, it's going to be a hindrance. You're not saved by circumcision. But if you're a Jew, 
like you are, or you've a hybrid, really, Greek dad, Jewish mom, and you're going to join this missionary band, then you need to identify with circumcision. Why? So that you're not a hindrance to the gospel. It has nothing to do with being saved through circumcision, but not be a hindrance. So when Paul looks at the prospects of ministry, he didn't want Timothy's uncircumcised status to be a barrier in the preaching to the Jews. And again, if you want to read 1 Corinthians 9, 19 through 23, you'll hear what Paul has to say about what he did in order for people to hear the gospel and there to be no hindrances there. So what does Timothy do? He submits to Paul's missionary pattern. Paul's missionary pattern was to go first to the synagogues of every city to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ by way of the Old Testament. That's the only way they preached it. Because the New Testament had not been written. They preached the, the Old Testament and, of course, the oral tradition and fulfillment of Christ together with the Old Testament to share with the Jews that your Messiah has indeed come and His name is Jesus. So, Paul went to those cities and preached to the Jews first. And so, Timothy, you'd be a hindrance if you're uncircumcised if I'm going to Jews first. So, the same Paul who would fight for the free and sovereign grace of God in saving sinners is the same Paul that would fight for removing any barriers for someone hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Do y'all think what Timothy did was painful? kind of anesthesia that they had back then? Can you imagine being 18 to 25 and had to be circumcised? Oh, and here's the deal. We want to be so comfortable in what we give up for the cause of the gospel. We give up so very little. As a matter of fact, if we get out of our comfort zones, we're just totally out. That's too bad. We're just not going to do it. Paul believed in law-free circumcision. He believed in circumcision of the heart. He believed in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Timothy took the knife in circumcision for the sake of the gospel. Of course, it's safe to conclude from the Scriptures that Timothy was not robust. We're sure talking about Timothy, right? Man, when you look at Paul, you think, how in the world could, you, could he endure what he endured and still be alive at this point? The guy had to be stout. He had to be strong. But most people believe that was not the case for Timothy. They believe that Timothy was probably suffered from a lot of different ailments. Thus, 1 Timothy 5.23, No longer drink only water, but use a little wine. Don't take that too far, Baptist. Right? For the sake, for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments that you have. Um, not only was there this issue of, his, of ailments in his life, but there was also the fact that Timothy was probably timid. Thus, that's why Paul wrote to him and said, God has not given you the spirit of fear, but of a sound mind so that you can take a stand for Christ. When Paul writes the Corinthian church, he's getting ready to send Timothy there uh, pastorally. He says to the Corinthian people, basically paraphrase, now be good to the guy. I mean, treat the guy well. You know, he's not Paul. He doesn't have that strong chin attitude of finger in your face, giving you the word, no bars, no holes barred. Here's Timothy who's different. And the fact is, Paul had found in him, however, even though he was timid, even though he was weaker than Paul, had all kind of ailments. Here's a man that Paul spoke more of a profound unity of heart and soul than any other person in the Bible. 
Have you ever, I don't have time to tell you this, but there's no, explain every time, but there's an amazing amount of time when he uses terms of endearment to talk about my son in the faith. How much time Paul spent with this individual, how much he loved Timothy, how much they had a kindred spirit about life and the ministry. Can you imagine having the Apostle Paul as your mentor? Can you imagine having the Apostle Paul as your prayer partner? Can you imagine sitting there and Paul opening up the Word of God? and Let's study together for a little while devotionally. Can you imagine what that was like? And here's Timothy who is faithful, determined, and loyal. A servant of the Most High God. It's interesting to note at the end that Paul brings up the subject to these churches about the decision that was made back at the Jerusalem Council. Now question, was the letter actually sent to this geographical region? The answer to that is no. Why would Paul want to bring up the decision that was made in the Jerusalem Council when he's in this area? Because news travels fast, and so does error. It's real easy for doctrinal error to slide into the church, and we don't even notice it. And Paul's saying, hey, let me go ahead and report to you what the Jerusalem Council has said. Why? Because error can slide into the church, and he's wanting to strengthen them. And that word strengthen that you just saw there in chapter four, verse 4, it's the same literal word used in Acts 3 of the fact that the lame man's legs were strengthened. In other words, Paul saw this as something that is very important for the life of the church. The Word of God must be preached in the church. In order for the church to be strengthened, we must preach the Word of God. And so Paul was preaching it. Why? He was preaching doctrine. Some of you say, well, I don't want to hear doctrine. Well, folks, the Bible is a book of doctrine. It's a, it's a book of truth and teaching. And you wonder why you can't stand against the enemy and you don't know anything. I'm not being mean, am I? I'm just telling you the truth, folks. You've got to know what the Word of God says. You've got to know the Bible. And Paul knew that. And here's something interesting. Here's a growing church. Isn't it? Notice verse 5. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and they increased in numbers daily. Isn't that awesome? You know, what is the paradigm for a church? Well, the Word of God needs to be preached. People hear the Word of God. They, they, become, they get saved, and as they get saved, they're already disciples. Right? You don't get saved and then somewhere down the line become a disciple. If you read the New Testament accurately, you'll find out that a saved person is a disciple. You can't have it any other way. And then that disciple begins to grow and reproduce others. And they begin to do the work of the ministry. And guess what happens? Glory to God, the church grows, and the pastor's not the one having to drive the bus. I mean, that's New Testament teaching, that the church grows. When people start plugging in and serving Jesus Christ to His glory, the church begins to grow. And look, if you're excited about what God is doing here at this church, then you want others to have that same excitement. The most encouraged, the most important motivating factor to take the gospel of Jesus to the ends of the earth is because of the glory of Jesus. Right? You want others to have the same joy in Christ that you have. And all of that rebounds to the glory of Christ. So we need to be a church that's growing. The object of church growth is not for the people out in the world to say, where can I find my niche at the church? The object for church growth is to hear the preaching of the Word, to become disciples who begin to work in the church and in the community and who really value what Jesus Christ has done in their life or value Christ more than anything else, and you find your ultimate joy there, and you want others to have the same joy. That's what I'm seeing around this church. And we need to see it more and more. Okay, you got that one? God chooses a new missionary. Number two, God guides his missionaries. Isn't it awesome 
This is incredibly fascinating. I'm going to preach it quick. But he's traveling through the regions, the uh, Phrygian region and the Galatian region. And he's forbidden by the Holy Spirit of God to go to Asia. I mean, that's just kind of shocking. Now, Paul is, is on his chosen missionary route, and he's headed toward Asia. Do we want the gospel to go to Asia? Well, absolutely we do. Yet the Holy Spirit forbids him from speaking in Asia. We don't have from Scripture how this word takes place. And if you look at other parts of Acts, it could have possibly been straight up prophetic utterance from the Holy Spirit directly to Paul to say, you're not going there. We don't know exactly how it takes place, but the fact is the Holy Spirit speaks through Paul and to him and says, don't go to Asia. This is not because God is against Asians becoming Christians. Yet in this one little verse, in this one movement, the Holy Spirit of God forbids them to speak in Asia. And it's one of the most important, pivotal turning points in all of Western civilization. And you find it right here in the Word of God. It would have been easy just to breeze over this. I'm going to come back to it in a moment. Next, we see that they try to go into Bithynia, but again, the Spirit of Jesus. By the way, the Trinitarian is at work here. God the Father speaks, God the Holy Spirit speaks, and Jesus speaks. So for your Mormons and Jehovah Witnesses who don't believe in the Trinity, here all three of them are speaking. Okay? That was free, by the way. So they are forbidden again. Maybe all of them get sick at one time. I don't know, but God is working behind the scenes, correct? God says, don't go to Asia. Don't go to Bithynia. I mean, the agent of Jesus' words and life on the face of the earth is the Holy Spirit of God. That's the agent. And He's at work. He's preventing them from going. They have a passion. They have a desire to preach in Asia, in Bithynia. They have a desire to make Christ known, and the Spirit of God says no. And after they change directions, the Bible says in verse 9 that Paul sees a vision. Don't you think Paul is very thankful for this? He's probably thinking, Lord, where am I supposed to go? I I wanted to go to Asia. I wanted to go to Bithynia. And here I am not knowing where to go. And the Bible says that he has this vision. I'm sure before he was perplexed. Instead, God calls them to Macedonia, which we know today is the outskirts of where? Of Europe. This man is in the vision. He's appealing to Paul to come over to Macedonia to help us. And what is unclear at first is now abundantly clear that God has a direction. God has his path for them to go in. They conclude that this is where God wants us to be. And here for the first time in the book of Acts, we are encountering a... a, First person plural, we. Why is that the case? Because the writer of the book has joined the missionary band. It's called the we passage in the book of Acts. So that means Luke, at this point, has joined the mission. Okay, let me give you some application and we're done. You ready? Here's number one. Write this down. God powerfully uses ordinary people to do extraordinary things. That's the first thing we see with Timothy. Simple faith. He was faithful, he was available, he was teachable, he was willing. Here's an ordinary man with a lot of physical ailments, natural timidity. And yet suddenly he's involved in one of the most significant missionary journeys in the history of the world. His name wasn't Paul. His name was Timothy. He didn't have to be Paul. He needed to be what God called him to be. He'd be a blessing to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ throughout Generations. Here's an ordinary person that God used to do extraordinary things. 
Did y'all know that incredibly bright people are the exception of the rule when it comes to doing things for Christ? Did y'all know that? I'm so glad about that. God can use ordinary flunkies. 1 Corinthians says he uses the weaknesses of man to confound the wise. Those who may not walk in the confines of intelligentsia, the sovereign God of the universe, can do great and mighty things. I remember a song growing up when I was a youth age. The song talked about, I see my brother standing like an oak tree. I see my sisters lovely as a queen. I look and see so many gifted people and wonder why God doesn't work in me. Sometimes I was fascinating, fascinated with riches and wishes, but then God revealed His greatest gift in me. It's called a new heart. Song says, I may not seem like the angels, and I may not preach like Paul. Oh, but I know God has given me the greatest gift of all. Guess what that is? A new heart. I'm telling you folks, if you're in Christ, you are a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things can become new and are becoming new. And here's the deal. You're just ordinary. All of us are. Look around. Who's impressive in here? The most impressive thing about you is the fact that you're, impress- you're not impressive. Right? And yet God uses us for His glory. Number two, God's providence overrules our plans in order to establish His purposes. Proverbs 16.9, the heart of man plans his way. Now, do y'all think Paul made plans? You better believe it. The heart of man makes his plans, but God establishes his steps. Yeah. You make your plans under submission of the Holy Spirit, and you allow the God of eternity to overrule your plans. You just let him work and, and lead your steps, because I saw that over the weekend. I saw that this morning in my prayer time. John Young comes in and prays for me every morning. And he, oh, let me, let me wait on that one. I don't want to say that yet. Just, but God overrules in order to lead us with his purposes. This missionary band had the maps out, had the Bibles out. God, they were submitted to the Lord, his plans. And yet God begins to direct their steps. We should never be discouraged when our plans don't come to fruition. Because God is simply doing something else. And what God does is the best. Number three, God's prevention of the missionary band entering Asia is a turning point in human history. One writer says, authentic turning points in human history are few, yet surely among them that of the Macedonian vision has to rank one of the highest. Why? Because of Paul's obedience to the Lord at this particular point, the gospel goes westward, ultimately into Europe, and the western world ends up being evangelized. I want to remind you that the Christian response to the call of God is not a trivial thing. And this is a turning point in the gospel as it begins to penetrate the West and the Western world in such a way that you and I have been able to grow up under the sound of the gospel. Folks, just pause for a moment. Think about how blessed you are. And back to what John prayed this morning. Some of the first words out of John's mouth were, God, it's just odd that we hear your truth. It's odd that we would be able to hear the gospel. Didn't you pray that? And you may not have known why you did that and started that prayer, but you know what my thoughts were in my mind? God, that's exactly what you're teaching us in the Word this morning. 
Why is it that people over here got to hear first? Do you realize how sovereign God is in order for you to be able to hear the gospel? Why? Because God would use the West for untold years to evangelize the East. Now, I think that's rapidly changing. I think we need missionaries coming over here. Right? But that's what God would do. Why were we not like the untold millions of Asians who have never heard the name of Jesus? Have you ever contemplated the fact that you were not born in Africa or Asia, but you were born here where Christ was known? All folks, you better not take that for granted. I've said this before, the affluence that we have in our country... Even in your own individual life, to have the kind of money that we have. The only way we can justify that as Christians is God has blessed us in such a way that we can serve others. And do something with that money for the glory of Jesus. As God directs Paul to Macedonia, the gospel will impact Europe, Western civilization. And it will be then the West that will evangelize the East. This is a major turning point in human history. And how grateful we should be. And number four. Listen to the unreached cry. Come over to Macedonia and help us. Oh. Send the light. We sang it, didn't we? Now listen. In Romans chapter 1, verse chapter 1 through chapter 3, it don't look good for mankind at all. Y'all ever read that? That we suppress the truth and unrighteousness. The Bible says that no man seeks after God, not even one. The Bible says that no one does good, not even one. The Bible says that for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The natural man cannot seek God in his state. It's impossible. The Bible says no man seeks after God. But he suppresses the God with unrighteousness. But we must never allow our understanding of man's condition before God to cut the nerve of the urgency for us to go over and help every part of this world hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. I don't hear one amen. Has the nerve already been cut? Do you remember what it was like to be in total darkness? Lost and on your way to hell? Can you not remember that? If you can't, you need to get saved today. Are y'all listening? Do you know what it was like to be lost? And then to be gloriously saved, to be in that condition where you did not seek God and could not seek Him. And all of a sudden, one day, you sat under the preaching of the Word or somebody shared Jesus with you. The light turned on in your mind. You didn't turn on that light. God did. God turned on the light in order for you to understand the gospel. You do understand that, right? And we don't think about it in the realm of come over here and help us. So... What are we going to do, folks? We're going to give them the bread of life. We're helping them with the gospel. There are untold millions who have never heard. The old hymn goes like this. The warning bell of judgment tolls. Above us looms the cross. Around our ever-dying souls, how great, how great the lost. O Lord, constrain and move thy church the glad news to impart. And Lord, as thou dost stir thy church, begin within my heart. That's where we want God to begin, right? To hear this cry. The cry of the nations to hear the gospel. Do you realize how much you are a debtor to grace and the gospel? Do you understand it was by grace that you heard? It was grace that God brought the gospel here first and not somewhere else. Y'all do know that, right? 
God is sovereign. He can do whatever He wants to do, but you're a debtor to grace. There's not one thing you did to deserve the right to hear the gospel. Not one single thing did you do. It's not because you're an American did you deserve that right. It was because God allowed you to hear. This was nothing in you. There is nothing in you that would move God to say, Oh, I must open His heart because He is worthy. I want to remind you that none of us are worthy. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourself. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. You are no better than the people in this world that are born to parents who are worshiping sticks and stones. You are absolutely no better. And yet we think we are at times, don't we? The fact of the matter is, the only thing that demarcates, you know what that word means? Limits or puts out a boundary. Us from the heathen, from those who don't know, is the grace of Jesus Christ. Aren't you thankful for the grace of God? How obligated we should be because the gospel came freely to me. We ought to want to take it freely to this world who is without Christ. And I've said this to you before, but I think I'm convinced that there are only two categories of believers in this particular body that we have here at First Baptist. We have goers and we have senders. And I guess you could say, preacher, go ahead and tell us the third category, and I will, disobedient. Right? When it comes to this call to take the gospel to the nations, you got goers and you got senders. And really, if you're not one of those two, you're disobedient. If we're reading the Bible and understanding who we are as Christ followers, then that's the case. We need to be convinced this morning of that. There is no in-between. May God help us be a growing, vibrant, healthy church who is actively making disciples for the glory of Jesus here and around the world, where Jesus has never been heard. Remember the old song, Jesus Saves? I like that one. We have heard the joyful sound. Say it. Jesus saves, Jesus saves. Spread the tidings all around. Jesus saves, Jesus saves. Bear the news to every land. Climb the steeps, Katie, and cross the waves. Onward is our Lord's command. Jesus saves, Jesus saves. Father, I, I pray we heard. God, it's so easy. Lord, it's easy for me to preach the sermon and not hear you. It's easy for me to prepare and not hear. God, I thank you this week for speaking to my heart. Lord, help us be a New Testament church in the strictest sense of the world. Let us, of the word, let us be a, a 21st century church that has a first century vision. God, help us with that. God, forgive us for our deficiencies and our failure to, Lord, to think about how blessed we've been to hear the gospel, that we are able to come to a church every single week and hear about Jesus and the gospel. And then yet there are millions and millions in this world who have never heard the name of Jesus. God, help us. You freely gave it to us. Let us freely take it to others. God, for the person in the, under the sound of my voice that's lost, Father, you know that person. Our persons, God, would you draw them to yourself? Let them see that they're saved by grace through faith, trusting in the work of Jesus only on the cross for our sins. Lord, thank you so much that you would be willing to come down from heaven to give us a righteousness 
that we didn't deserve. And that you would robe us in that righteousness. Take our sin debt to the cross. And as Colossians says, you bore in your body our sin. Lord, thank you so much for that. That you would save us from our sins. And Lord, help us, Father. In so many ways, Lord, today, there's so many applications to the sermon, Lord. And wherever that hit in somebody's heart, wherever your spirit is fingering that issue in our hearts, God, would you help us act upon it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.